The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Twitter-famous Colin Landforce. Colin, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. I'm well. Thank you. Kellen? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just enjoying the weather out here in Colorado. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of dive in. And before we start, Colin, congratulations on the recent announcements and the going public. That's a huge success. I'm looking forward to kind of diving into some of those topics today. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. We're excited as well. So let's talk about how your background and how you got into the cannabis space. Yeah, definitely. I'm a lifelong serial entrepreneur. And as an adult, that kind of translated for me into uh, a lot of service providing, particularly in uh, marketing and product. Uh, So I had big clients, little clients, kind of everything in between. And uh, ultimately ended up serving a lot in the restricted consumer goods spaces. So firearms, drones, skincare, cosmetics, a couple other in in that realm. And then finally, we landed in cannabis. Uh, The origin story is some guys that I grew up with started flipping packs to dispensaries. Um, uh, There's a a heavy marketing and product focus in that group. So I I jumped, jumped the shark, got in, and the rest is history. You know, it started doing, I think, 4 million like I said, bulk flour to dispensaries in 2017. And now we are CPGs all the way to the moon. Over the last four years, you've probably seen a pretty aggressive progression of the industry just from where it was and where it is today. Yeah, I think generally, I think I tweeted this morning that it's still in the first inning. I think that's probably about right. Um, but it, it, it moves very, very quickly, as you guys know, and it's, it's definitely come leaps and bounds for us. We didn't know what products it was going to be. We knew that if we had the network, we could adjust and, and move accordingly. And so that's what we've done. And the more refined consumer goods, the carts, the edibles, uh, I think there's a huge play there. We also really like the extracts, the flour, the, the core stuff that's been around forever. So I think... A common question that's always gets asked, and I'm curious to know if that's for you, is, Colin, what's a day like for you? You know, take us through a, a normal day to day. Obviously, no days are the same, but just from a regular basis, you know, what is your role entail and, and what you're doing for the, the company? Yeah. So, with the announcement yesterday and us going public, my my title is now CTO. Uh, I've always been pretty focused on technology, our tools, uh, and our software stack, and I'll be doing more of that in the future. Day to day, though. I'm in the mix. I think a lot of people, uh, especially in the MSO and then in the public space, get abstracted from what, what we're actually doing. Um, and what we're actually doing is, is making CPG with a super volatile, super inconsistent raw good. So uh, I'm based in Portland. We have a hub and light manufacturing, more assembly here. Uh, we have uh, hubs mirrored, very similar setup wise in Northern California, Southern California. And I'm in the mix trying to make things better, improving processes, uh, making decisions about how we're routing raw materials, what product lines, and just fighting the good fight, really. Yeah, it seems like you are got your hands in a lot of different buckets at the same time. Yep. I think that's, that's how entrepreneurship goes. And you know, I'm excited to be playing on the biggest stage, uh, but we're still in the weeds, no pun intended. Well done. 
All right. So let's dive into one of those brand sticks. In the past, you've described them as Bud Light. Can you share a little bit more about how you kind of came to that comparison and lean into that? Yeah. So like you said, Sticks is a value brand for us. And it was, it was the first product that we set out to do in my side of the origin story of Unrivaled. And like I mentioned, we had the network and we're waiting to figure out what products we're going to start with. And the pre-roll is such a staple and such a crapshoot. I think even to this day, you go into a store, you buy, you buy a joint, it might be good, it might not. And especially four years ago. So we set out to make a really, really fantastic pre-roll. And something that I'm often surprised by people outside the industry, not understanding like the difference between sun-grown and indoor, we, we set out to make just a really good staple. And that was, that was just outdoor pre-roll, accessibly priced, easy to get out the door. So for us, that meant a lot of A-B testing. We imported a, a hop milling machine from Germany. And we did, I think in the end, it was 12 different variants of particle size and density. And we made these little test packs and we sent them out into the world and we just got tons and tons of feedback. And it came back very, very clear that density A, particle size Y, this is the recipe for a great pre-roll. And then we've made you know several million of them since. And then we've also got a different, a different recipe for the indoor. Indoor material is much more resinous, much more finicky to deal with. And it did not come out the same when we did the same testing exercise down the road. So I think we started with Sticks Origin Story. It started as a pre-roll brand. We extended that uh, on the value shelf rather than in the pre-roll category. So we have carts, we have flour. Uh, moon rocks are a big play for us there. I think the, a moon rock skew is very bang for the buck, value-oriented skew. And uh, so we're going big on the, the combined category skews like that. And you want to dive into that from where you're located? Is that kind of the, the same process you've seen? Yeah, it is the same process I've seen. And I think that starting with like a pre-roll, which is a staple from the traditional markets, I think is, is really intelligent. I have a, a random question for you though, Colin. Do you guys see a lot of variance in terms of different indoor material? Or is it something that you guys have just found the right vendors to work with as far as supplying that indoor material to create that same consistency, the same with the outdoor material? Is there other kind of vetting situations? Or I guess, is there other variables that you guys require before you bring in a batch and go through the milling process to pack the, the pre-rolls? Because not all outdoor is created equally. Same with not all indoor is created equally. Absolutely. We definitely have regular partners, but as a starting point, we're talking about agriculture. And then with the diversity across strains, grow methods, harvests, it's all over the place. So even even with those same regulars, there's just a a super wide net of of what product ends up looking like. And something I I say and talk about internally here is we we design for efficiency uh, and optimize for flexibility because it's going to be all over the board. And so that's kind of the approach we've taken. Uh, You can only plan for so much uh, in that, that realm. That being said, we definitely do have specs, right? If it's coming into a jar, this is what the inputs need to look like. And then this is the spec for the, the product that comes out the other end. And the same thing on a pre-roll. Uh, here's the input spec and, and what we expect out of it. And you know, hopefully the worst case scenario there is we just have to adjust. Uh, we, we obviously avoid sending back product. Generally only do that in the case where it's just materially different from what everybody understood we were getting into. Yeah, I think that's one of the most, from my experience, it's one of the most undervalued aspects of doing business in the space is the experience a procurement team has 
and how much that actually affects all of the downstream products from from concentrates to vape pens to to pre rolls. So yep. I give your your procurement team all the credit in the world. I've watched a lot of really seasoned supply chain folks come into this and and be a lost puppy. Same. It's, it's, just, it's just not that. The good news components are packaging is that stuff is, but when it comes to the core, it's these are not tomatoes. One hundred percent. We've actually had clients that have made very, very large mistakes in terms of going out and signing supply agreements with the wrong partner. And turns out this wasn't the right way. And now they're committed to a massive batch of material and it just, it never works out that way. So one of the most undervalued aspects of the supply chain is the the experience from a procurement standpoint. So from the Bud Light angle, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Like I walk into a dispensary, how, how does, do I understand or gravitate towards that product if that's the one I'm looking for? Well, I mean, every brand's got a muse, right? Uh, I like the Bud Light one with sticks, just everything about the brand energy. You could also take it to the color, right? Um, Bud Light has a very distinct blue. The sticks green is is a fantastic green. I love the sticks green. I can't remember its actual name, but those colors are are very prominent in our brands, right? Cabana blue is a very, very specific blue. But uh, I think the dispensaries do the work for you there, right? Consumer walks in, the bud tender is going to point them where they want to go. And if it's value-oriented, that's an easy call. I think everything in our industry is is still very much dictated by the bud tenders. So we don't have to do much of the work. Having the brand that aligns with that ethos and collateral that aligns with that obviously helps the cause. I think it's super intelligent because I think that's one of the largest segments of the market is the value buyer right now. You see it across the board in every state. Another thing we lean on, which is really across category, but I think especially applies to sticks, is we we price at wholesale with the end consumer in mind. So tax is a big variable, of course. Our wholesale pricing is all intended to have that land out the door at a price that makes sense to a consumer. So whether that's you know eight thirty three ends up twenty bucks out the door, four seventeen ends up ten bucks out the door, and that's that's with an assumed you know assumed Keystone and twenty percent. Um, th- those things vary, but we price everything so that it makes sense to the end consumer as much you as have, we can. Do you have MSRP conversations with dispensaries and are they willing or do they like hear you guys out from that perspective? I think it varies widely by the operator. Generally, good luck, right? Yeah, you, you, can, <laughs> totally. you can have that conversation. But I think the, the biggest <laughs> operators, their whole their whole game plan is is to get get a lower cost that allows them to lo- undercut the MSRP. So yeah, good luck. Right. Do you try to do any sort of educational with these bud tenders because they play such a vital role in the experience for these consumers? That's the whole game. We call it education and appreciation. So in the past, you know, pre-pandemic, we had a suite at the Moda Center, which is where the Blazers play, a suite at the Staples Center, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And education and, and appreciation. Bud tenders are the influencers and the tastemakers at a one-to-one level. Yeah. And they're going to talk to people about and sell people the stuff that they know and the stuff that they like. So arming them with talking points and helping them feel educated and, and be educated and serve their customers is the, the path. So appreciation and education with, uh, with bud tenders is, is our game. Really well said. Do you think that's the, the future though? Do you think as the industry kind of evolves, people will continue to rely on bud tenders for advice? I mean, obviously naturally that'll be an easy conversational point, but do you think that'll always be such a heavily reliant relationship? I think it'll probably vary by category. There's a lot of good parallels you can draw with booze. They get a little different between liquor and wine, et cetera. But 
I think that this is a good one and that there's a lot of beer. When I'm buying the Bud Light, I'm just grabbing it out of the freezer rack and or the cooler rack and, and I'm out. I also could go into a bar across the street and get a very specific cocktail that's recommended to me by somebody that's super knowledgeable. So I think Endgame is like probably the full end of the spectrum. So let's dive into the other two brands. Do you have kind of associations similar to the way you, you compared Six to Bud Light? Yep. So I'll, I'll give you these. And these are from my head. This is not, the, this is not our, our formal position. To me, Cabana is like a Vuv Clico. Okay. Right? Uh, Corova is, is a Jack, maybe. Uh, it's probably higher priced than a Jack. So maybe it's, maybe it's a Johnny Walker black label. But again, this is, this is out of my head, not my department. Um, but I think, I think that paints a good picture, right? Corova is a 800-pound gorilla in the room. For us, and uh, my favorite thing about really what we're doing is how ingrained in the culture Corova is. Brian, you've seen my tweets about this. I think a lot of MSOs are making these brands that are for hypothetical cannabis consumers. Corova is here for the people that want to get high and that aren't afraid about anybody knowing about it, right? It's built on high potency. The 1,000 milligram black bar, which is a a legend in, in the cannabis industry, is where we came from. And there is no... There's no soccer moms eating a thousand milligram black bar. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of people eating them because in California, that is not a recreational product, but there's actually a 2000 uh, and a 1000. We have a licensee in Arizona and Oklahoma, so you can go even crazier if you want to there. What do they sell for, for 2000 milligrams? I don't know off the top of my head. And would someone consume that in one sitting? Uh, I, I think so. <laughs> I can't speak to that type sure. of consumption very well. Right. I myself, I'm a pretty casual user, but I think what I was just hitting on is really like a key thing for me. There are so many companies that have a marketing agency build an avatar and create a brand that's light and fluffy and and for the soccer mom or the yada yada. And that's nice. In the meantime, we're going to sell products to people that actually use weed. Yeah, I mean, listen, from marketing sense, everyone's golden goose is always the soccer mom, right? Like whenever you start off, that's who I want always. And that's great. But like, realistically, what are they buying? And is it any of these products? Likely not. But I think their future down the road, so everyone can build those brands for them. I think, you know, what you've kind of established out is like, we're here now and we're going to build that market share because I think brands and marketing will be what kind of transfers over state lines as we people start to get a little more experience and understand, hey, like I got this product. I loved it. Now I want to get it here. And then they start kind of angling from that perspective. Yep. Our golden goose is people that smoke weed. Yeah. Well, then you're in the right industry. Yep. All right. So I want to kind of slightly switch gears, but say more of the dispensary angle. You walk into a dispensary for the first time. You've smoked flour in the past. How would you, Colin, simplify the experience to walk a uneducated consumer through a product selection choice in order to kind of get started? Sure. The, the best answer to this question is go to the spot in Santa Ana or Bloom in San Leandro or Oakland and find out. But I think that bud tenders start with, with a seed, right? So uh, I've smoked flower X, right? Start with a seed and go from there. That, that's a tough one to answer, but I think that accessibility comes into play, right? And so things like pre-rolls are more accessible than flour that they're made out of. Uh, just from a hardware needed standpoint. And then other SKUs go from there. I may be a little bit dodgy there, but I think you get what I'm getting at. Every one of those scenarios is so hand-to-hand. And I think that is kind of the beauty of that bud tender relationship and the cannabis experience right now. 
And like I said, I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, maybe certain categories, right? And ed- a distillate-based edible, much easier to, to go, great, I just want that one that tastes like strawberries. Um, but I don't think flour is going anywhere and extracts going anywhere. And uh, I think that'll be catered to every single one. So for Colin, it's probably a joint, uh, maybe a cart. Because the reason I asked you that is when I was with Kellen in Seattle, we walked into the dispensary. It was one of the first ones I walked in. And there might have been 10,000 products, it felt like. There was a thousand different flower choices, uh, hundreds of different edible choices. And I was just kind of like, I don't even know where to start. So I kind of like asked him and he's like, well, what do you want? Edibles. And that's a common question we get asked because most of our listeners are East Coast based. They've only been to one or two dispensaries, but they're excited about the opportunity with New Jersey, New York, Connecticut coming online. So they're like, which product category should I start with? What should I go for? And that's why I was curious, someone like yourself, you've got an educated brand, strong consumer focus, you know, what would that experience be like for you? Right. Our experiences are very one-to-one. That's a great, great example. I think a lot of retail formats, retail formats vary across the industry, but all of ours are one-to-one bud tender relationships. So for me, cart probably, right? Especially in that vein. But uh, the one-to-one relationship and, and the bud tender's ability to guide the conversation um, around your preferences is a super valuable one. And so that, that one-to-one is a big part of our retail experience and I think will be going forward. I agree with that. I mean, I'm a flower guy and I've been a cannabis consumer a long time and I've even wor- I've worked in the industry for a long time. And when I go into dispensary, it's that one-on-one relationship. And every single time I'm like, and I've seen a ton of different flower and every single time I ask them what what's new and we have a conversation and they end up guiding even my kind of buying decisions in the dispensary because it's just the way of that whole interaction and it's a comfort level too. And, and I don't think that it'll go anywhere until you can go into a store like, like with Bud Light and you can pull it out of the refrigerator without anyone being there kind of as the, the gating agent associated with those kind of right. products. And in that vein, you have certain categories where that's just never going to happen, right? If I, we just got some tropped cherries in that's the best weed I've seen, seen in a while. If I go to a store looking for that strain, like you may have that strain for me, but if you're the bud tender, you know, oh, well, this is, you know, this sun grown, this is last year's, this is last year's harvest, or yes, it's that, but I'm not really sure that it's that, you know, the label says that it doesn't look like trap cherries I've seen before in the past. Right. And, and that, those inconsistencies that are going to be present in a lot of these categories are always going to make, make that a super high touch conversation. Yeah. Take us through the process of adding another product to your brand. Do you start with the customer perspective in mind or do you start with the product type and then kind of work out to flushing out the brand? Yeah. I mean, we have a fairly famous 117 point checklist for this kind of a thing. Uh, I think it starts with, it starts with the market. I think a lot of the times in a lot of industries, consumers may not know exactly what they want. Um, So the first step is the market and seeing what is out there in the category, what the pricing is like, so on and so forth. And from there, you can back into things like cost models and beyond. Our moon rocks, our sticks moon rocks are a great example of this. I think there was not much of that in the market in Oregon before we launched it. There were a couple. I don't want to, I'm not trying to presume that we were the first, but there was not much demand. I think a lot, there was a lot of uncertainty with our sales team about if there was actually demand for that. We were confident there was. We looked at what's out there. We back into the cost model. We sourced the components and, uh, and, and we hit it. So I think it's market first, which is kind of maybe backwards, right? And with that, product market fit doesn't always come. Sure. But also from a product market fit standpoint, the market is still kind of developing as consumers kind of adjust what they're really looking for and, and kind of how that experience entails. Just to clarify, what is a moon rock? So a moon rock is flour mixed with oil, dusted or rolled in keef. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of everything. 
jammed, jammed into, into one. So we do in California, we do three and a half grams. So eighth and then one gram moon rocks in Oregon, we do one gram moon rocks. And I think the, there's probably, if you Google it, you get these images of these nugs with like oil oozing out of them. When you go to do a, a CPG, that's one gram every time you can't really do that. So we developed a process around that, that is milling the flour to then get a consistent one gram every single time moon rock. And uh, like I said, it's, it's a great bang for the buck product. Yeah, definitely going to have to try that one time. Uh, <laughs> take us through the recent announcement, right? Like how long was that process going through? Can you share some details of kind of, you know, what that was like? It must've been obviously an exciting one, but also a ton of probably paperwork and information, you know, from a commitment standpoint, whenever you kind of merge with another one, there's a, a big kind of going forward moment. So, you know, take us through a little bit about that. Yeah. So for me in this journey, this is my second round of M&A. So second big integration of two companies and uh, and then reaping the rewards and the struggles and challenges of doing that. So for us, there's this massive influx in infrastructure, right? We got cultivation infrastructure to build our brands on uh, in both states. We've got facilities, we've got more retail, all that. And in terms of the process, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a slog on the back end. You've got the audits, you've got really the integration of the humans, right? This is a massive undertaking. There's obviously redundancies. There's processes that mix or mesh or don't. There's strengths, there's weaknesses. There's a change curve. If you Google change curve, there is a, I don't know the actual name of it, but a, a widely known change curve that like describes excitement, acceptance, doubt, or something similar, right? And it drops off a cliff and then it, and then it levels out. And I think that there's never been anything more accurate. That change curve graphic with some emojis splatted on it has been in several decks of ours internally. And uh, I'm excited to finally be here. Like I said, it gets us onto a bigger stage and I'm really excited to be you know, the West Coast MSO. There's a lot of people playing at a very high level all over the country. The nature of the industry is that it's super fragmented. And for the time being, we're the West Coast folks. I'm excited on that value proposition, on that focus and uh, what it is, because California is as big as it gets in terms of economies in, in the United States or the world. And so it's a, it's a good area to focus. Plenty to do here. Yeah, I would say that's pretty fair. So how long does something like that take from, I'm not saying from like the initial conversation, but just kind of like rough ballpark on like, hey, like this might be something serious. We should probably kick it around internally, what we're thinking, like just from a ballpark time frame. I think that our merger with TerraTech that ended yesterday with Unrivaled Brands was uncharacteristically quick. Uh, three months. It was announced announced in March. Obviously, in the work works longer than that. And then we announced the close yesterday, which was the eighth of July. The first round we did with cannabis, you have these regulatory approvals. Ours happened through the middle of COVID, so we had a purgatory period of like nineteen months or something in the first pass of this, right? Where everything is done, we're just waiting for for somebody at the government to check a box and and call it call it done. So from that standpoint, that that creates a lot of unneeded angst just from a leaving it up in the air. But I think something we've done is, is just once the LOIs are signed, it's full speed ahead, right? And there's there's certain mechanics you put in place to address a possible outcome of, of things not going through, but full speed ahead on integration and, and working together. And then on days like yesterday, all it really means is great. Everybody's got the same email address now and uh, redirect website. And we're finally doing this, but we've really been in it for months already. I think that's, that's perfectly said. So I guess the next question would be, what's next? What's the, the next target? What's the next kind of outcome? What, are, what should we expect from you guys in the, in the short and near term? 
Yeah, so we've already announced our acquisition of Silver Streak, uh, which is exciting. We really like the DTC space. You know, we have our, our retail stores, but I think the entire trend of, of DTC is, is a really interesting one. And I think that knowing that we're not going to be on a USPS truck anytime soon, I think kind of the mixture of cannabis retail and then bringing a, a faux DTC experience or an on-demand experience is a really interesting one. And with Silver Streak, it's as big as it gets delivery service-wise in, in Northern California, and we're excited where else that can go. And then I got to kind of stick to our guns uh, with our CEO's comments on this yesterday. We've got more deals in the pipeline. We're excited to keep expanding and adding strategic pieces that, that line up with West Coast MSO and serving cannabis consumers rather than hypothetical ones. So then I guess my, my follow-up question would be like, you, you left out a coast. What are we expecting from the East Coast standpoint? So our West Coast focus is for today. Can't speak too much to the future. Obviously, we have big ambitions and there's a lot to do. There's a lot of untapped markets over there. For now, it's West Coast. And I think that kind of focus is super productive for the day-to-day of a business, which is outside of the abstracted MSO land is like really what matters. And so that focus has been super productive for our team's vision uh, day in and day out and uh, mine as well. So we'll we'll just have to take it one coast at a time. And and while we're on the topic, West Coast, Best Coast. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure to edit that part out. <laughs> so do brands travel? So you walk into a dispensary, you see a brand you love, do, do brands travel like that? And if not, what do you think the industry needs in order to kind of to have that established brand? Like a Coca-Cola, like a Pepsi, where you walk in, where you're like, that's the product I'm looking for. How, how do brands get to that point? So brands travel, logos on packaging don't travel. I think there's a lot of the latter in the industry, right? The real brands in cannabis are the ones that are embedded in the culture. And those brands all travel. Cookies travels, right? Kiva travels, Corova travels, Sticks travels. A lot of the brands that we see, you can't say that for, right? And, and that's because they're manufactured by a marketing agency in the last 24 months or similar. So brands absolutely travel. And that's what we see with Corova, right? Corova is licensed in Oklahoma and Arizona and has a huge presence there. That's that's off the brand. And you cannot say that for a lot of the brands in the space. I agree with that so much. I've seen there's a one brand in particular that I know. I I just I was debating whether I even say it just now in my head. But I'm not gonna, I'm not going to. There's one brand in particular that uh, was acquired in the past. And it was acquired by a, a larger company than what they were. And they completely changed the entire formulation. And it's different when you go to from state to state. In one state, it's it's a, a specific solvent typed, type extraction concentrate. Another state, they decided to use a different solvent. And so it's just like, just like you said, it's same logo on the packaging, but it's a completely different product inside the packaging, which is just, they're shooting themselves in the foot and they're just not being loyal to the industry and the consumers. And once everyone kind of figures it out, it's going to be, it'll be rough water moving forward. So yeah, consistency is, has always been a pillar for us. And it's for that exact reason, right? You don't get to do a brand, uh, even, even one state at a time. If I can't walk into the store down the street and buy something and then go, you know, over the mountains through the woods uh, for the weekend with my family and walk into a store there and buy the same thing, uh, then that, there's not an actual brand happening. There's there's a package with a logo. And then at, at a bigger scale, the same can be said across states, right? That is a package with a logo. Um, they're not even putting the same stuff in it, much less much less the, the same stuff with the same processes, a consistent form factor. 
That is how a Bud Light happens. That is how a generational brand happens. That's how M&M happens. Kellen, is that because of cost saving? You think that's what they're doing? I think it's a combination of cost saving and trying to like speed the market disorganization internally. I don't think it's one variable. I think it has to do with kind of multiple variables, right? Like they expanded too quickly. They entered the market. They weren't prepared to enter. Then they were like, okay, well, we launched the brand and all of these dispensaries are asking for us to carry it. What else can we put in it? And then from a top down, there's just individuals that are in decision-making positions that don't have experience in the space, which you see that time and time again. I think we touched on it earlier in terms of the experience with procurement, right? Like most undervalued position. And so there's people making decisions that are like, well, it's all THC. So like, what's the difference? You know what I mean? So I think that you can't really pinpoint it to one specific variable. I think it's it's a combination of a lot of different variables in my experience from what I've seen. I think M&A is a big piece of it, right? On a spreadsheet, it's all the same. And yes. So that's, a, that's especially the case if, if that brand expansion happens by with rows in a spreadsheet, then it makes it that much easier for that to happen, right? You buy processing lab X, they have this hardware, great, ship the logo, and then, and then you get there. We talk about it all that time, that that really finite balance of like the optimization and growth, like how these these big MSOs are scaling so, so fast. And ultimately, the consistency of the product, it's going to be almost impossible to kind of replicate as they're kind of just scooping up all these places. Because like you're saying, they're likely just shipping the, the logo and just saying, throw it on. Right. Yeah, I mean, the industry is so challenging. Like when I was in, I spent some time in Northern California working and it was like, you could get an OG from Northern California, and then you would get a batch of OG from Southern California, and they are completely different batches and they're going to create completely different products. So even from that perspective, it's just the, the industry is still fragmented and that's going to create all of these issues from a branding perspective, which again is why procurement is so important to, to building that consistency within, within a brand. Yep. Agree. Colin, biggest misconception in the cannabis space. I think the biggest misconception in the cannabis space is the hypothetical cannabis user, right? Again, drummed up in a marketing agency, an avatar for a customer that may or may not exist, or if they exist, they buy that little vape pen every six weeks, right? We're going after folks that go to the dispensary every day, or they go twice a week, or they go three times a week. Those are the people that consume cannabis. Those are the people that are loyal to brands. Those are the consumers. And I think that there's a huge divide across those. And I think it's perpetuated by the fact that a lot of the large MSOs are operating in limited licensed states where whatever exists is what exists, right? And they're setting that tone. When you come to the West Coast, there's been legal cannabis for 25 years in Oregon and California. Maybe it's 20, right? No, it's 25. It's 25. 96 is when I would say technically was legal in California. (laughs) Right. Right. So the brands that have grown out of that and the consumers that have grown out of that uh, in the culture and the industry that's grown out of that, is not a manufactured one. Uh, and, and it's the most authentic in the country. And that means that I think the most influential brands in cannabis globally will come out of the West Coast. And I think, in my opinion today, it's cookies. And it's for all of those reasons. Before we do prediction time, we ask all of our guests the same question. If you could sum up your experience into a lesson learned or main takeaway to pass onto the next generation, what would that be? Builders build. I have a strong bias towards action. I think everything that gets done in general, anywhere, in any industry, in any space is by people that did it. 
And that may seem obvious, but I think a lot of people sit on the sidelines and wait to be asked to do it or guided to the light and builders build. You just do it. That's how we get here. Love it. 10 years from now, what will be the main differentiator when consumers are selecting a product in the dispensary? Brand, product category, influencer, social recommendation, anything else? I think 10 years from now, we will be getting into a more mature market where brand really makes a big difference. Today, it's much more wide open. In in California, brand is a huge factor. In in Northern California and Oregon, uh, genetics and growers are a much bigger piece of the puzzle. But I think the more mature it gets, the more the brand will matter. And 10 years from now, we won't even be close to mature, but we'll be headed down that path. What inning do you think we'll be in in 10 years? I bet we'll be in the second half of it. I bet I bet five or six, just based on the speed, right? With alcohol, it took 100 years. It's not going to... Or I guess we're 100 years into alcohol. I don't think that that's one of the places where the comparison falls off. I think we're going to be in fully, pretty mature industry 10 years from now, especially if we get federal legalization in the next 24 months. Kelly, your prediction? I think Colin said it perfectly. I think brand is really what everyone's going to kind of... Uh, right home about, if you will. I think that's what's going to dictate decisions. And I mean, just like people don't buy RC Cola, they buy Coca-Cola, right? Like you don't hear people talking about RC Coke. You don't hear, you don't see a world famous soccer player pulling a a RC Coke bottle off of the stage, right? So I think at the end of the day, it's going to be brands that are going to dictate it. Let me tack on to that. I think an important caveat to that is brand is not logo on a package. Brand is expectation setting and consistency and community and culture. And so with those things, it's brand. And logo on a package is easy to confuse, but it's not the same. Just to expand on that, it's trust, right? Like there's a, there's a trust factor. When you select a product, there's expectations that consistency of the product is going to be what you're expecting. Because in this industry, at least from what I've seen, sometimes consumers have an off-putting experience the first time and are likely deterred from going back down that route again. They're either they had a bad experience of an edible in college, they, they did this, they did that, and they're unlikely to kind of consider that in the future. So I think if you're saying trust is so important for this experience, and sometimes the first experience is that delicate balance. So for me, obviously, brand is the high choice. I think it's also recommendation. I think 10 years from now, I'm, I'm going to believe that we're going to be way past where we are now, probably fourth inning, maybe third. But I think there'll still be a big group of consumers that haven't kind of migrated into mass adoption. And I think they'll still be hesitant just because I think the stigma, at least from the East Coast standpoint, is still so staunched on some people that they're unlikely to attempt it. I'm talking more about like the boomers age. I think they will be a little more hesitant to try it. And I think in 10 years, they'll still have that stigma where I think the other generations will be more likely to go forward. So I think for their social recommendations, I think the dynamic of a friend saying, I had this product when I went out. To Oregon, I had I tried six. It was amazing. You got to go grab it. I think that's huge because I think someone here that goes out there for the first time is looking for that specific type of brand and trust. So absolutely cool. So Colin, before we wrap, where can our listeners get in touch with you? We'll tag it all in the show notes if they want to learn more. Yep, big Twitter guy. So my last name is Landforce, exactly how it sounds. L A N D F O R C E, and uh, at Landforce on Twitter. I've I've been making a conscious effort to do tweets the last six months. And I will continue to do so. And then for us, unrivaledbrands.com. Just like it sounds, you can get a great rundown of what we're up to, our brands, where to buy them, all that good stuff right there. Cool. Appreciate the time. Thanks, guys.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.